Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Stephen Haderman, the Janet Wright Ketchum 1953 professor in Middle Eastern Studies and the director of program in Middle Eastern Studies at Smith College. Uh, Stephen has, has written extensively about the region, and I'm sure he's he's one of those people that needs very little introduction. But 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 I, I want to just draw people's attention to a couple of the things that he's done recently. Um, he's, he's written extensively, including um, publications such as in in Mediterranean politics, explaining the Arab uprisings, transformations in comparative perspective. He's contributed to a number of, of edited collections. He's written extensively on authoritarianism, on Syria, on, on the, the region broadly. So it's really exciting to have, have you with us today, Stephen. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time this morning. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to uh, to join you for the podcast. I'm looking forward to it. Likewise, it's uh, it's it's interesting when I try and compile lists of, of who I should get on as a guest. I, I talk to previous guests and, and get their suggestions, and and yours was a name that cropped up several times when I was speaking to to previous guests. So it's really exciting that we could make this happen. But Stephen, uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in in the Middle East, please? Sure. I, um, I, I was uh, a recent graduate from high school, actually, and, and rather than head off directly to college, I thought I might take some time to travel. And uh, since it was getting to be fall before I took off from the U.S., uh, it seemed to me I might be well advised to spend my time someplace warmer rather than colder. So I planned an itinerary that took me to the Middle East with the expectation that I'd be there very briefly and then move on uh, to, to Europe. Sure. Kind of doing a, a post-college year, of, a post-high school year of travel before college. And and that trip to the Middle East really kind of um, uh, interested me, engaged me, uh, intrigued me. I, I found the region fascinating. I found the people fascinating. Uh, and it led me, it was really the first step that led me toward uh, a decision ultimately to do my undergraduate work uh, in Middle East studies, go on to get uh, a PhD in in comparative politics at at the University of Chicago with a focus on on Syria and the Middle East, um, and then to pursue a kind of hybrid career where I've I've been in and out of academic positions at at, at Columbia, at Georgetown, now at Smith, but also. Um, done work a bit closer to the policy arena at, at the U.S. Institute of Peace and and uh, spent quite a bit of time early in my career at the Social Science Research Council as well. So um, so in a number of ways, I've, I've enjoyed the opportunity to, to think about the region, work on it, um, engage with people from the region, and, and help in some small way to try to shape research programs on the region. Wonderful. It's, it's fascinating. Can you... Uh, tell us a couple of things, though. I, I'm, I'm curious. What were you planning to study before your your trip to the region and to Europe? Uh, my my plans were completely unformed at that time. Right. I, uh, <laughs> I I didn't really have uh, a clear sense of of what my focus in college might be. Right. Uh, and and frankly, at, at the time that I decided to pursue a degree in in Middle East studies. There were very, very few undergraduate programs that offered majors in the field. There were only two, the University of Chicago and the University of Michigan. Right. Uh, 
And I was, in fact, the very first undergraduate to enroll in the University of Michigan's um, BA in Near Eastern North African Area Studies. So wow. uh, it shows you how far the field has come. <laughs> yeah, it does. In the past in the past 40 years, though I shudder to think it's been that long, sure. because now uh, now those kinds of, of, of degree programs are commonplace. Yeah. And just reflecting back on your on your trip to the region, and I'm not going to say 40 years ago, but, but that, that initial trip, what was it that piqued your interest? I mean, you said that you became fascinated in the, the region and the people and the politics. What was it? Can you remember? Well, I, I remember pretty clearly trying to puzzle through competing narratives about the region, uh, those that I brought with me from what I knew about the region from from my time in the U.S. It, it, it wasn't a great deal of, of information or insight, but I had impressions that had been shaped by largely media narratives concerning the region, narratives that emphasized uh, a lot of the sort of cliche um, conceptions of the region that I think still circulate in a lot of, of, of popular understandings about, about the Middle East. That was one set of narratives. On the other, I was talking with and learning from people in the region who provided very different narratives about their experiences, their sense of politics, their views of the United States. Um, and then I was also observing and absorbing my own sense of what I was uh, seeing around me as I as I moved around the region, and and figuring out how those narratives fit together, and and identifying the gaps, and recognizing that the region um, offered a great deal more. Uh, both of importance and of interest than than any single narrative might might uh, might suggest, really persuaded me that there was there was a lot to be gained from devoting some time to giving myself the tools to try to figure things out, and that's that's what really led me uh, in in the direction I, I took as an undergraduate and and beyond. And I think that's the best reason for, for doing any type of, of academic work, that intellectual curiosity to, to better understand the world around us. I think that's, that's, that's the best thing that we can, or the best starting point that we can have, I guess. Where did, it, where did your travels take you at this time? I was visiting, I, I went to Israel, I went to Egypt, uh, and traveled through, at that point, uh, a very separate uh, West Bank, uh, even traveled into Gaza. Right. Uh, so I, I was focused um, pretty narrowly around the Eastern Mediterranean. I did not visit Lebanon, Syria, uh, Jordan on that visit. Uh, those, those travels came, came later. Um, but but what I did see was was uh, was sufficient to to really shape the rest of my career. Sure. So those of you, or those people that are listening that know your works, Stephen, you will they'll realize that that you focus a great deal on Syria. So mm. where did this this interest in Syria come from? At what point were you did you decide that Syria was going to be your or Syria and and the Levant broadly or the Arab uh, East as you call it? What what was it that drove you to that that part of the region? Well, as a graduate student, uh, I was motivated partly by the curiosity you referenced earlier, and and partly 
by a somewhat strategic, instrumental sense of <laughs> what kind of topic and and what kind of um, what kind of case, uh, which of the of the several uh, choices of countries to work on uh, that I had in the region, uh, as a comparativist, might provide me with the most substantive opportunities to dig into interesting and understudied questions. And uh, it was clear that that within Middle East comparative politics, there were a number of countries that benefited from a great deal more scholarly engagement than others. Uh, you know, I, I decided that, that there was relatively not relatively little, but less to be gained by um, becoming a, a, a specialist on Egypt. Um, I, I found the, the Israel-Palestine issue uh, fascinating, but one that carried with it so much political baggage uh, within the U.S. Academy that that while it remained a subject of significant uh, interest to me, I didn't want to focus on that professionally. And I found Syria to be an extraordinarily interesting case, and one on which far, far less work had been done. And it looked to me, as I uh, moved through my graduate training, as a case that would also benefit a great deal from being subjected to the kind of analysis that would bring general theories and concepts within the discipline to bear on big questions about how Syria had come to develop in the way that it had, um, how, it, how it had acquired the kind of, of state form that it had, how, how we can understand the organization of Syria's political economy. It seemed to me that Syria um, opened up opportunities for research that had not been adequately exploited, that, that we could learn a lot about Syria by treating it um, to the sort of comparative analysis that that had been emphasized in my graduate training. And at the same time, it seemed to me that maybe Syria had something to offer the discipline as well. So I, I set out uh, in that direction in many respects uh, from, a, from a sense of Syria as offering um, important intellectual, theoretical, but also professional opportunities. Um, that was probably uh, that was probably a mistake since I've been struggling with with you know Syria has been such an important part of my of my work and and uh, in many ways my my personal life as well for the past thirty five years or so yeah under under a variety of different conditions including these very difficult conditions of the past um, eight years that you know I'm 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 mindful that. You know, we uh, when we make these choices as as graduate students, sometimes their their uh, their effects may endure longer than we imagine. <laughs> sure, yeah, and it, it's really interesting to hear you sort of reflecting on that. I think looking at your work in the in the following decades, it's it's easy to look back and see how you're you're engaging with these sort of big big questions about state formation about about economic development and political structures. It, it, it's easy to see how you've actually put into practice what you set out to do at that point, which is, I think, commendable, speaking as someone who's, whose PhD went off in a completely different direction from where it initially started. Um, where, where did your, your interest in authoritarianism come from then? One of the 
Well, let me sort of situate that chronologically. Sure. Perhaps. Yeah, I, I was working as a graduate student um, just around the, the time that the, uh, that the Soviet Union imploded. Right. Uh, a time when, when uh, authoritarian regimes around the world were undergoing transition. And even then, it was clear that there was something different about the Middle East and, and something different about uh, countries like Syria in particular that had, uh, that had managed to, to preserve and sustain authoritarian systems of rule despite facing all of the challenges, all of the pressures that the literature on the breakdown of authoritarianism and transitions to democracy had identified as the causes of authoritarian breakdown, developmental failures, uh, defeat in war, um, a variety of different conditions that, that were associated with authoritarian breakdown were present in the region and yet breakdown hadn't occurred. Uh, at, at the same time, you know, Middle East comparative politics was focused on explaining failures of democratization in, in the Middle East. We had been through a phase in which there had been some attention to civil society as a potential agent of democratic change in the region. I think it became clear pretty early on that expectations that civil society might play that role were a bit, uh, were a bit uh, perhaps overstated um, in the literature. Out of an interest, and I think a benign interest in in supporting possibilities for democratic change in the region, uh, but those those two those two conditions, the, the the focus of the literature on processes of democratization as as uh, experiences of failure in the Middle East, and and the resulting interest in explaining what was missing, what the Middle East lacked, what it what it kind of wasn't able to achieve in, in comparison to other world regions. And on the other hand, this deviation of the region from this global trend toward democratic transition. Those were the, you know, two of the, the big factors that led me to focus on, on uh, authoritarian persistence in the Middle East. And to me, Syria, you know, in, in many ways, um, not only exemplified the tensions between regional experiences and those, uh, those trends, one within Middle East comparative politics, the other uh, in, in the world in terms of the third wave, as it was called. Yeah. Um, and, and Syria seemed to me to be a particularly important instance of a departure from uh, this global trend toward democratic transition, in part because it, it the, the Syrian regime, then led by Hafiz al-Assad, was a kind of authoritarian regime that had proven itself to be very, very unstable in other contexts, a kind of radical, populist, redistributive regime uh, that had that had pursued fairly, um, extensive strategies of, of nationalization of private uh, private sector of uh, segments of the private sector that had that had embraced a fairly radical commitment to social transformation at home. Um, other countries that had that had either flirted with that kind of radical populist authoritarianism or or worked to consolidate it had largely failed, and yet in the Syrian case it succeeded. 
and so um, my the, the question really driving my research was how could we account for the success of uh, the, the Ba'ath Party in consolidating a variant of authoritarianism that had been highly unstable uh, in other contexts like Peru, uh, like Mexico, uh, and even in Egypt. Uh, and so, you know, the, the thesis and the, it was partly um, uh, a response to what I what I felt had been uh, a somewhat um, misdirected focus on failures of democratization uh, and a shift toward looking at the successes of authoritarianism. And in fact, initially, my thesis was called "Successful Authoritarianism." Um, right. And uh, and uh, an effort to kind of um, challenge uh, existing claims about the fragility uh, or the weakness of of populist authoritarian systems of rule through the Syrian case. So that was really what was driving that focus. It's it's absolutely fascinating. I was I was reading a, a piece that that you co-authored recently. Uh, that, that dealt with with some of these questions through the lens of of sovereign power and sectarianism and and it it was trying to look at the impact of some of these questions on regional order and I'd like to come back to that in a minute but you you make some interesting claims in in that piece about the sort of the authoritarian strength and questions of fragility and and rejecting this thesis that that Syria is a sort of a weak or a failing state, I wonder if you can just elaborate on that. And perhaps through the through the question of to what extent has authoritarianism changed since you've been discuss, uh, since you've been working on it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, we we are all sort of struggling to come to terms with um, the uprisings of 2011 in the region and and their effects, uh, and and in some respects, it, it's the consequences of the of the mass protests of 2011 that have shaped the region's political landscape over the past eight years in, and, and moved it in directions that I think all of us recognize as, as, as quite disturbing, including uh, growing radicalization, increasing sectarianization uh, as a factor both in domestic politics and in regional relations. Um, and. What what we have seen is an effort to account for these developments by um, or through arguments that that try to categorize the states in the region as as weak or or fragile. Uh, that is, states that lack the capacity or or have failed to govern effectively, that lack legitimacy, and that as a result uh, were both vulnerable to conflict, especially vulnerable to conflict, and which um, have, have deployed uh, in an instrumental fashion tools like sectarianization uh, as a response to their lack of legitimacy and as a way to mobilize support and to, to structure alliances during a period of regional turmoil and instability. And, and I think, you know, along with a number of others, I tend to view arguments about state weakness and state fragility with a great deal of skepticism. I I think they rest on assumptions about the purposes of the state and about what it is that states are 
designed to do that that uh, are very heavily influenced by Western notions of a developmental state and the criteria that uh, that a state is expected to meet if it is to be able to provide the kind of governance that will advance the well-being of all of its citizens. Uh, and it is certainly true that in many respects, states in the Middle East fall short in having developed the capacity to achieve the kinds of aims and ambitions associated with developmental states uh, in the West. Um, but I, I find that, that when we look at uh, states in the MENA region and at the way in which state builders, typically authoritarian uh, ruling elites, have gone about the process of state building, they have not sought to build developmental states. They have not sought to construct the kind of state capacities that would equip those regimes to effectively uh, advance the well-being of all citizens uh, equally. Quite the contrary, what they have done is to use the state as an instrument of regime survival, yeah. uh, to construct state capacity in a fashion that uh, enhances their ability to respond to what they perceive as, as threats and opportunities. And the purpose of the state, the function that the state is intended to serve in these cases, uh, is not at all developmental. It, it's, 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 it's a very different set of purposes focused sure. around securing the interests of, of regimes, regime elites. And, and, that, and, and if we start from that assumption that the purpose of the state is not to advance the well-being of all citizens, but to ensure the security and survival of regimes, then we have a way to account for the organization of state capacity, for the distribution of stateness, for the way regimes manipulate access to the state, uh, for the way in which um, citizens uh, citizens respond to the presence or the absence of state capacity in terms of social provision, in terms of security, in terms of economic security, in terms of social mobility. And we, we end up, I think, with a very different understanding of, of the state. And yeah. it's one in which we need to be mindful that state capacity in MENA is uneven. It's uneven in systematic ways. It reflects you know, very clearly structured asymmetries. And those asymmetries can be explained by reference to the relationship between specific forms of state capacity and this, this notion that the purpose of states is to ensure the survival and security of regimes. And, and in the piece you're talking about, we, we talk, we, my, my co-author and I talk about the physiognomy of the state as having a kind of Popeye-like you know, uh, appearance in the sense that you have these very strong bulked up security sectors yeah. that rest on very underdeveloped developmental frames. And, and once we begin to sort of appreciate um, why states in the MENA region look the way they do, uh, I think arguments about state weakness and state fragility uh, begin to look a lot less persuasive and actually tell us a lot less than, than those who, who, who characterize states in those ways um, might, might, uh, might think. So that's, that's why I've 
trying to push for a somewhat different approach to the to the study of the state in, in, in the Middle East, and then to understand um, the, the the role that sectarianism and sectarianization has played once we once we begin to operate from that conception of the state and stateness and regimes as architects of certain kinds of state forms rather than simply characterize these states as weak in relation to the um, to the criteria that are appropriate for uh, developmental states but not appropriate for states in, in the MENA region. I find that such a compelling, convincing argument and I, I'm curious to see where where you go with that type of view in the future in terms of 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 how you conceptualize the sort of the the differences across states and the the, the different ways in which regimes have have engaged with with state structures and state apparatus for their own survival but Stephen I'm conscious we've, we've taken up a great deal of your time but I have I have two questions remaining if I may just on that last um, that last answer what are the what are the regional repercussions of of such strategies? I wonder. And then also, what are the sort of in a similar vein? I guess questioning what if and and asking you to speculate a little. But what are the possible hopes and opportunities are there for a potential desectarianization, if you will? You talked about this the sectarianization of politics as a sort of as a regime strategy, as an attempt to to let regimes hold on to power amidst contestation, but but what hope is there for a desectarianization? Is this as bleak a picture as it sounds? Well, what I've what I've tried to argue with my co-author in the paper you referenced is that um, regimes in the in the Arab East, at least the Levant, the Arab Peninsula, Iran, um, have deployed the norm of sectarianism in very very different ways, uh, and that. It, it factors very heavily into regional dynamics, but in ways that underscore these differences in how norms of sectarianism are, are deployed. And that we have a set of actors that really have a very strong interest in sustaining and strengthening a state-based regional order, in, in, in no small part because it would, I think, put them in a position of some advantage, including yeah. in particular Saudi Arabia. And those states that that really are committed to the norm of sovereignty as the organizing principle for regional relations are deploying sectarianism in very different ways than a set of revisionist states, including in particular Iran, that see it to their advantage to use the norm of sectarianism as a tool to mobilize populations and to build linkages and connections and alliances that undermine the norm of sovereignty as an organizing principle of regional relations. Yeah. And um, I, I think what's what's really critical in, in trying to make sense of this is to get beyond some of the arguments that have been made about sectarianization in the region, including, you know, the argument that sectarianism is nothing more than an instrument of regimes that deploy it on a purely instrumental basis and have the capacity to, to control and manipulate the way it's used, turning it on, turning it off like, like a spigot. 
you know, arguments as well that claim that that regimes resort to sectarianization as a last resort because they lack other uh, instruments for mobilizing societies on their behalf because they're weak or fragile, uh, a claim that some of my of my colleagues have made. Yeah. I, I think we, what we need to recognize is that we are in a moment of what I've described as normative fragmentation in the region in which we have these two competing conceptions of regional order, one anchored in the norm of sovereignty, the other anchored in the norm of sectarianism. Um, and and that actors associated with both of these uh, of these perspectives are are deploying a variety of, of tools, but using them toward very different ends. Um, and you know that I think uh, gives us, in my view at least, uh, a better way to try to unpack uh, how sectarianism has been deployed, how it's become organized. And to to look at the uses of sectarianism in a somewhat more nuanced way. Now, you know, as for where that might lead, um, you know, I I I tend to think that the norm of, of sovereignty in the Arab East is is sufficiently consolidated that ultimately it will it will end up prevailing as the organizing principle around which regional relations become organized and. And I suspect, you know, we will end up with a with a different configuration of regional relations than we've had in the past. Perhaps one that reflects uh, a more balanced um, division of power, distribution of power between an Iranian bloc and and a Saudi bloc of some sort. Um, but I do I do think that that within some period of time, it's hard to know how long it will take. Uh, a regional order will emerge that that will just in, in in you know as it becomes consolidated uh, reduce the extent to which sectarianism is deployed in more disruptive, more um, uh, adversarial, more aggressive ways in the region, and and that that is my sense of what a possible pathway out of the current. I think quite destructive uses of sectarianism that we've seen in the region could develop. Right. Um, in terms of, I don't know if I should just jump in, but in terms of your last question about how authoritarianism has changed, I, I mean, you're you're referencing another strand of of work that I've been very interested in pursuing, which is, you know, what has happened to authoritarian governance in the Arab world as a result of the 2011 uprisings, and there, I, I'm afraid my my views. Um, don't offer a great deal of optimism about transformations of authoritarian governance. In fact, my sense is that what we've seen is a shift in in uh, modes of authoritarian governance in more repressive and more exclusionary directions by regimes across the Arab East. And, and I've got a paper on that that I hope will be out soon. Wonderful. But I'm sorry. Wonderful. But it does. It does seem to me that that you know regimes found themselves in a very difficult position trying to cope with high levels of popular mobilization after 2011, with um, with uh, very significant demands for the restoration of um, of social pacts that provided opportunities for social mobility, that provided levels of economic security that regimes were no longer able to provide. 
And regimes in many ways found themselves at a crossroads in which they faced the choice of either reforming in ways that would equip them to be responsive to popular demands, but which would require them to concede a great deal of power, and uh, a direction in which they would build the capacity to repress those demands and to, uh, to continue their own positions, to sustain their own positions of power. Uh, and to sustain transformations of economies in a more neoliberal direction in the hope that over time those economies would generate the resources that might temper um, some of the mass grievances expressed in 2011. So, so I see regimes as having broken quite decisively with the, the, the populist redistributive social pacts of, of the past, but moved not toward new social contracts of the kind that are often called for in the region, but rather uh, more repressive, more exclusionary frameworks of, of authoritarian governance. And and I, I don't know whether those are sustainable. I'm afraid they might they might turn out to be far more durable than than we might like. Yeah. Well, on that rather bleak and gloomy note, I fear we've run out of time. But thank you so much, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I, I've learned to. A great deal just through talking to you. Perhaps, um, uh, yeah, I, I would I would urge people to to go and read your work if they've not done so already. Just to to really go deep into the themes that you've been talking about today. So thank you so much, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Simon. I've I've enjoyed it a great deal myself. I appreciate your giving me the time. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Until the next time.